Hello and welcome to Born to Dance, the podcast for Matthew Bourne's new adventures that explores and questions why dance moves, inspires and excites us. I'm your host, Paul Smethurst, resident artist for New Adventures, and every week I will be chatting to members of our extended family to discover their journey through dance and how it has impacted their lives. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. For a podcast that celebrates the joy of dance, it would be remiss of us not to shine a light on people that bring movement and motion to life and look at the industry through a different lens. Our guest today has the incredible power and skill to guide our gaze and shape the world we are seeing and the emotions we are feeling. She is one of the most successful and sought after lighting designers in the country and also a pioneer for female artists in the industry. She has won five Olivier Awards, two Tony Awards, a Helpman Award, the Opera Award and numerous Critics Circle Awards. She is known for lighting some of the most famous British exports, including The Curious Instant of the Dog in the Nighttime and Warhorse. But here at New Adventures, we are extremely proud and lucky that she is an associate artist of our company. People see light in functional terms, but it's a vital creative muscle, she once said in an interview. I'm not interested in lighting looking pretty. It should mean something and say something. Paulie Constable, welcome to Born to Dance. Thank you very much, Paul. Do you know what? I'm the one who's privileged. It's so lovely being a part of New Adventures. I feel incredibly lucky. So... Oh, it's a mutual love that we have going on. It is a love. That's gorgeous. Well, we're going to delve straight into where where that connection came from with New Adventures. I'm intrigued myself. Um, I mentioned that quote there because um, I, I'm really fascinated with how you use lighting as a device to enhance and tell stories. And I really see you as a as a consummate storyteller. Is, is that what drew you to Matthew's work? How, how did that collaboration first come about? Um, oh goodness, I'm trying to think now. The first show I did with Matthew was Play Without Words. And I suppose it's not surprising in a way because Play Without Words was a piece that Matt made at the National Theatre. And I'm really seen much more as a kind of theatre and opera lighting designer than a dance designer. I really, I, you know, I came from fringe theatre and rock and roll. I don't have a, a dance background at all. So it's interesting that we met working in a theatre that's traditionally a space for text-based storytelling. Um, But I grew up working with companies who improvise, particularly companies like Complicite. And um, I was always trying to find a way to tell the story that they were telling through light. And whenever I'd seen Matthew's work, one of the things I found generally quite frustrating in dance, although quite liberating to watch, but for for the way I think, I couldn't see the clear story that was being told all the time, or sometimes it was abstract, or sometimes it was kind of very literal in kind of a weird way, and I couldn't quite get my head around it. And then I saw Matthew's work, and I realised that what he and Les were doing is that they were being really, really, really sharp with story. You know, every moment in the in the work is is telling you something. It's moving you on. So it's almost like what he was making was like a theatre piece but at the speed of dance and people weren't speaking but they could very easily have been it's so vivid the kind of narrative going through so I think I kind of came at it with a sort of narrative sense in this building that was all about words and they sort of just took the words away so it was a bit of a risk I think when Matthew asked me to do the show but I, I, I just loved it and I always used to joke it was a little bit like you have to light at the detail of Chekhov, but at the speed of dance. So it's, you know, also quite often in dance, people don't want to see faces or they're looking at images, whereas Matthew and Les are looking for both. The, you know, the characters that each that each person kind of portrays are really, are, are really vivid and you really need to see them and their facial expressions and what they're doing. So it's not kind of conventional dance lighting. We sort of created this sort of hybrid form in a way. So that's a bit of a kind of a roundabout way that I, I think what happened is that we kind of, we came from very different places and it was brilliant because we all brought different things into the room. 
And did did he hunt you down and was like, oh, I love I love what this person's doing. I, I want to work with them. Or where, where was that kind of um, meeting point? As is quite often the case for me, it was Les, actually, who brought Matt and I together. Les and I had done um, a couple of plays with Marianne Elliott and um, got on really well. We'd worked together at the Royal Exchange. And I think by then we'd also worked together at the Donmar Warehouse. And it just worked really well. We had a strong relationship. And I think Les felt that I could bring something to the company. So he put his head, his sort of neck on the block for me, really. And Play Without Words was insane because we had to make it so quickly. And I remember after the dress rehearsal, I just had my head in my hands. I thought I was going to get fired, actually. I really did. Because it was so fast and furious. And I don't know whether you remember the piece or many people would have seen it, but there were multiple stories going on simultaneously. And so often I was trying to shape how the audience received those different stories. Is this one the main one and this is in counterpoint? Are you looking at all of this as a big picture, very specific? And the dress rehearsal happened and it was, from a lighting point of view, it was a total car wreck. Um, and I was like, this is the first time he's ever worked with me and he's just going to... <laughs> and I kept just seeing producers kind of walk out the back of the theatre thinking, that's it, that's my P45 in the post. But talk about throwing you at the deep end, because I never thought about it that way. There are like three three people playing the same character, and then you times that by all the different characters. And and uh, and it is really clear when you're watching it, but a lot of that is is down is down to you because um, of course, Ma I think Matthew's so great at, um, at finding ways of of drawing the audience's eyes to certain um, kind of beats or, or action points. But in in that show particularly, that the lighting really really helps with that yeah it, it has to and also the les's design was so essentially it was an open space and there were moving elements within it so we had this kind of central staircase that could hold quite a lot of narrative but everything was very porous and the audience could see everything all the time so how you saw it was down to how it was lit so yes it was really challenging and nearly broke me it worked. It worked out for you, though, because you have come back and done a lot more with us. So um, that P45 did not come in the post. <laughs> um, and were, I mean, were you were you nervous going into into that um, into that sort of rehearsal space? Had you worked in dance previously or was it sort of the first time? Yeah, I think it was the first time I'd done a proper grown up piece of dance. I'd... It, Interesting. My other half used to be used to look after the theatre at the place. He was the technical manager there, and he very much worked with Second Stride, Chumley's, Deviate. So there was a lot of kind of contemporary dance in our lives. Whereas I'd worked much more with the fringe companies, and he and I actually worked together with Complicite. But there were dancers in the house. You know, we whenever we had parties, you know, half the Chumleys would be there, or you know. So I used to see a lot of dance. Um, but it felt to me, I think because I've got this background in literature, my, my degrees in English literature, and I love practical criticism and I love dissecting things. And I used to really enjoy watching lots of the work. I mean, I remember watching lots of Pete Mumford's work with Second Stride. It was amazing, but I just felt that it was so abstract. I wouldn't be able to do that. It was so different to anything that I was interested in doing. So when... Matt asked me, the idea of being in a room with a bunch of dancers was great and I was really happy to be in a room with music as well because I, I, by that stage I was already doing a lot of opera. But um, I think the, the fear was kind of that would I be able to keep up and would I be able to make something that felt like mine in this kind of weird hybrid of narrative-driven dance. So, so it was scary but it was scary, exciting, as opposed to scary, impossible. Great, if that makes sense. And of course it does. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I've I've been I've been doing my research on you, and I know that collaboration is is really important for you. Um, is is that a, was that one of the draws to working with New Adventures? And in and do you work? Do you Matt and Les and Etta? Does it work quite collaboratively in that way? It. It's, it's a really collaborative room. I mean, because my relationship was very much with Les to start with, 
and because Les is so, you know, his his sense of the visual world of the storytelling is so strong. I'm very much led by him, and I suppose also I can be quite shy, and so I would hold on to the person I would know best. So definitely would play with that words. So I was really holding on to Les, sort of <laughs> kind of help. Um, but actually that's really evolved over the years. And uh, I think that it's taken a while, but I think we now have this amazing three-way conversation, um, which feels really unusual and very, it allows us to go further with what we're doing, I think. But yes, at first it was definitely me hanging on to Les and um, trying to keep up with Matt. And Matt was learning about how to, how to work with me. And it does, it takes a while. And that's one of the things that's really lovely about, you know, what you were saying at the beginning about being an associate artist is my relationship feels like it's more than just a show. You know, we've been, when, when I first did Play Without Words, I think the next show I did after that was Dorian Gray. Um, and it was, a, you know, it was a couple of shows before I took on a classic with, with Matthew and Les. And I think that was quite nice because it just, gave me time to kind of learn how they worked. And also, I had no idea about any of the classical ballets. I find ballet quite, it's quite opaque to me. So, you know, the idea of taking on something that had a history, even though Matthew's rewrite, Matthew and Les are rewriting that history, it just felt quite scary for me. So I, I'm really pleased that it started with one of those more unusual shows. It's so interesting hearing about that that evolution of that relationship, and the I'm I'm sure that the building of trust is is really vital for, for that. That you know that Matthew can sort of let you you know hand over the reins as it were and and let you do your thing. I'd love it if you could just give us a little bit of an insight into into what what kind of conversations happen, what happens in the rehearsal room, and then when we get into um when we get into the production um, rehearsals, because I think a lot of people listening might not know about how that sort of symbiosis happens. Well, I, I think in, in sort of simple terms, so quite often Les will create a world. You know, he, he makes something, a sort of usually a model box, and that's what I work with to start with. And one of the things that Les is very strong about is that he loves using light inside his design. So he'll quite often have um, practical lights, um, which are kind of real lights that you might see in your home or something, or lights that fly in, or, you know, quite often the character of a scene, he's already thought, oh, there might be a light, a sort of domestic light that becomes part of this. Um, so he's he's already thinking about it. So once he's kind of created a world, he'll invite me to come and have a look, sometimes with Matt, sometimes not. And I sort of try and think about how light might participate in the world that Les has designed. So you're sort of, it's like I'm constantly looking for clues in a way. So you sort of create a world, Les creates a world, and I think about how light might play a part in that world. And then Matt sort of develops the sense of how the story is told and moves through that world. And as he creates that story, I'll think about how light might, you know, if it's just one side of the stage or in Sleeping Beauty, you know, we might be in the downstage kind of palace space. or we might open up to the bigger space or the moon might come in. That might be an idea from Les. And I'll think, oh, what's the quality of light of that? So it's like trying to find the the sort of story steps in the same way that the scenery does story steps. And then we go into rehearsal and I start to think about the things that I've put into the space that will tell the story. How are they then going to have a relationship with how the choreography develops? So the duet in Romeo and Juliet, you might go, you know, we need to have a part of the stage that's dark so I could light from this side of the stage and have shadows on the wall in that direction so the audience will look at the two of them on the bed, see their shadow beyond, the other side appears in darkness. So it's like I've already thought about the sort of world of the lights, but as Matthew rehearses, I then shape that world to meet the choreography. And that's sort of all in my head, and then I go into the theatre and try and kind of try those ideas out. 
I oh, I can't tell you. I'm so fascinated. I feel like I'm having a little personal lecture with the amazing Paulie Constable. I have to say, if, if I always think this, I think I might have said this to you before. If I wasn't a dancer now doing the work I do, I might I wanted to be a lighting designer because I just I, I'm so fascinated by it. So, I guess my question is. I can understand you coming up with the, with the atmosphere and maybe been able to sort of imagine that beforehand. And then I've seen you in rehearsals and, you know, you're sitting there and you're you're doing your detective work and figuring out the, the kind of scenes. What happens when the bodies come into the space and how does that, like you said, the fast pace of the bodies moving, does that change your your sort of vision in terms of the lighting that you're going to use or any states? I think it's funny. I don't do many shows that are fast moving. And I mean, the, the choreography in match shows is fast moving. But the kind of simple thing that I'll do at first, like I'm just thinking about the caradoc scene in um, Sleeping Beauty. You know, we started with that when she came on, you, he, she came on, you know, she, that was one idea. And so I make that idea and I'll watch it in rehearsal and I'll kind of think, if I gave the scene this shape and that entrance looks like this, then what what it might, ha might, ha might happen as that character comes down stage or that kind of sense of coldness comes into the room more, I might follow it and try and get that sense of shape to, to sort of, fill the space but I'm still trying to stick to the original story so the audience know that what's happening it, it's all one thing and then you kind of move a bit like liquid inside it it's the same with the swans in Swan Lake really a lot of Swan Lake the earlier sections are really busy because we're moving from scene to scene to scene when we get to the lake I actually sit back quite a lot and there'll be moments of breath where I might shape how the audience is seeing the swans. But also, I just want to create a space where those beautiful boys can be absolutely dived into and appreciated by the audience. So I give it a quality of, you know, night and kind of romance and kind of, but edgy. You know, it's kind of quite violent as well. And it's kind of alluring, but dangerous. But I want the audience to be able to dive in. I don't want them to be looking for it. I want them to feel like they can see this whole landscape. So it's funny thinking about the bodies, like the swans. I want to give the bodies space to do what they need to do. I think it, sometimes it's about the more complex the choreography, the more I need to sit back and let that complexity land for an audience. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. It does. And uh, the, the phrase popping into my brain is, is less is more, which is such a cliche. But I feel like um, letting the letting the movement speak for itself in moments mm. is really powerful. And I can imagine that as a lighting designer, and maybe I'm wrong, um, this would be me. If I was a lighting designer starting out, I'd be like, <laughs> you know, doing everything and trying all the things. And and I guess it's quite a nuanced uh, thing to to learn to, to when to pair back and 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 to make something a bit more simple i think yeah and i think sometimes that will reveal itself so you can watching rehearsal one of the things that you get a sense of is where where you need to, obviously if the scenery is changing or you're going from one place to another or one situation to another that's the sort of time when you clearly need a lighting cue it's like we're taking you audience from this picture to this picture so so things like that are really clear but once you're there, you might have to do some work to pull their focus somewhere or to close down onto somebody because something else is happening somewhere else or to kind of watch a duet in a different way to lift that moment out. But I think so many of those moments kind of reveal themselves and I, and I find it, I do agree that less is more often. I think... If you're going to make something shift, really make sure it needs to shift. So that, and and also different things can shift at different times, can't they? So there might be a moment when I need to create something dynamic, like in Soho, for example, in um, the Swank Bar uh, in in Swan Lake. 
but because of the frenetic nature of the space that we're supposed to be in. But then at other times, the dancing's doing all that kind of craziness. And I go, if I add crazy on top of crazy, what we're going to get is a mess. I mean, one of, the, one of the ones that will always make me laugh like that is the nightclub scene in Dorian Gray. I've never actually had time to light it. So it's like 15 chases all running simultaneously and me going, one day I'll get my hands on that and then suddenly everyone's off stage. <laughs> Hilarious. Because you have such a short amount of time, don't you, to, to do mm. your to do the main bit of your, well, arguably the main bit of your job, which is to take it from in your brain and put it on stage. Um, what's that process like? I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's quite highly pressured. The, the process of, of lighting is absolutely terrifying because everybody else gets to try something beforehand. So if you're a set designer, you get to talk and make a model. And we, you know, Les builds these beautiful 1 to 25 models of the spaces that we work in. So Matt can try moving things around in them and you can see different ideas. And if you, when you're working in costume and Les is designing costumes, he makes these amazing drawings and then they have to be fitted and tried and made and they'll do a first fitting and look at them and take photographs and look at colours and fabrics and things. And then you go into the studio and the dancers get to rehearse and practice and even the sound, you know, we can, you, we can hear all of that beforehand. And everything for me is in my head and I communicate through a series of technical drawings. So I do kind of 2D and 3D drawings of the lighting plan. But it never tells me what anything is going to look like. And it's interesting, earlier you were talking about you can have a sense of atmosphere you, but even with that, you don't know whether it's going to be communicating anything. You can go, oh, I think the light might be coming from here and it might be this colour. But how the scenery is going to respond to that colour, you know, I can check on technical drawings if the light will land where I want it to land. But other than that, whether the quality of light has the right, is the right quality, tells the right story, creates the right atmosphere. I have no idea of that until we're in the theatre. And quite often... You know, we might start putting scenery and lights into a theatre on a Sunday evening and we've got the dancers on stage by the Tuesday and I'm trying to make all of this kind of magic happen in front of everybody in a theatre when there's no time and time is money. You know, it's, it's crazy. It's such a kind of ridiculous thing to do for a living. But there, there obviously must be a real thrill and joy in that because you're still doing it and doing it to such high, you know, results. So, what is that for you? What is is it quite an addictive thing? Why do I do it when it sounds so hard? I think because it is so hard. I think I do think all of us who make shows. There is no, never a perfect show. There's never, the work's never finished. We're always trying to solve a puzzle that can't be solved. Um, every show you make, you walk away from thinking about how it could have been better. Nothing is perfect. Nothing's finite, nothing's finished. So I, I often laugh about the fact that we're all clearly drawn to something that is unsolvable, you know, and it's not, black and white there's no what show a show that I might love you might not enjoy so we also have this completely uncontrollable element called the audience and we've got no idea what they're going to make of it and that first time you put a show in front of an audience is both terrifying and makes you feel more alive than you'll ever feel in your life so clearly I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie I do think it says a lot about people that that go into the line of work that we're talking about. I think it reveals a lot about their about their their character, and uh, but I you know I just see it as such artistry. And do, do you still get the same feeling from doing the work that you do now that you did when you started at the beginning? I, I still I still find it completely terrifying. It's one of the things I talk to sort of young lighting designers and students about the most. Because I think something that people really often ask is how do you know what it's going to look like? How do you know? And the answer is you never will. You can have a sense of it, 
And you can do lots of things to try and give yourself a structure of ideas that you're working within, you know, a brilliant collaborative process and things. But I don't know whether anything that I'm thinking or planning is going to work. Um, so if you accept that, then that's the world that you're working in. And it's so I, I sometimes joke that the only advantage of having been doing this for the only difference really about having been doing it for a long time is I panic less when it's bad because I've managed to sort of turn things into not quite so bad a few times um but I still get a thrill and I I've really I've really missed it as well and that's been really interesting because you know I think if I'd gone into lockdown and this kind of hiatus and kind of gone oh actually it's really nice being at home or you know but I ha I mean it is really nice being at home and it's not it's nice not traveling as much and but I've really missed lighting I've really because it's also like alchemy it's it's so elusive and all of us making any kind of show are only as good as the sum of our parts it's not any one person who makes a show a success. It's the sort of space between what Les, Matt, me, Etta, Terry, Paul Grudge, it's what we, and all the members of the company and all the members of the tech staff, it's what we all do together that makes the show, makes the work. So it's also completely out of our control. I mean, we're lunatics to do it. <laughs> But I'm so glad that we do because it is it is it is such a joy. And I guess with your work, um, differently to you know, I was obviously a dancer in the company, and uh, our job is then to take that work and you know to perform it and to share it with you know with many people. Um, I I guess with you, you're you're always moving on to something different, a new challenge. It's always it's that I can imagine that it's so varied the work you do, and there's a richness to that, and there's a you know, there's never a predictability to what you do. It's always like starting from scratch. Always, always starting again. I mean, I have, I do, I do have quite a small group of people I tend to work with. I lo I really love that kind of highly collaborative um, sort of melting pot, the kind of crucible of ideas. And that that's not right for everybody. Some people find, would find it really irritating having a lighting designer who wants to spend a lot of time in rehearsal or, get involved with the model, you know, at an early stage or something. So I'm not right for everything. But if that's the kind of currency of the room, and it really is with Matthew, then that it, it's a very happy place for me to be. So uh, while my life is very varied, there's a lot of names and relationships that come up again and again. Beautiful. Um... I'm going to move on slightly. Well, move backwards. Uh, so here on Born to Dance, we like to take a little trip down memory lane and mm -hmm. revisit the first time our our guest encountered dance. And when when we were devising the podcast, I felt like it was very important that we didn't just speak to to dancers because um, we want to speak to people that are connected to our company. But dance is such a universal thing. It's such a it's such an innate thing in all of us. And so I'm I'm really excited to to dig into this bit with you. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about any memories you have um, of dance? It, is, did you dance when you were a child? Did you watch anything on stage? Take us back in time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, my mother tried to get me to go to ballet. And I was a terrible tomboy. And I just, it was the tutu that put me off. You know, it was the kind of, you know, it was the 70s. So it's kind of powder blue kind of even though she managed to get a blue one, but I was just terrible um, and loathed every minute of it. And it kind of put me off the idea of dancing, I thought, for the rest of my life. And then I won the disco dancing competition at school when I was about, I can't remember, 11 or 12, dancing to the Bee Gees version of Beethoven's Fifth because I was inspired by Saturday Night Fever. We're going to have to go back because this is too good to not delve into a little bit more. <laughs> Firstly, do, why did your mum send you to ballet? Was it just because that was what everyone did? That's what everybody did, you know, every... every and, I, and I think also because I was a terrible tomboy, I think she thought it might... She really worried about the fact that from, from being a toddler, I would not wear a dress. I would just, I would only wear shorts. I think 
It's still the same, you know, I'm in tech, I'm always in shorts. That was like, it obviously didn't do what she wanted it to do. No. <laughs> it probably did the opposite, actually, you know, when you're sort of um, coerced into doing something and it makes you yeah. do the do the opposite. Um, so, okay, so then how did you then get into disco? Yeah, I, just, I just loved music. Um and I and I didn't relate, of course, because again it's the seventies. I didn't relate the fact that dancing was dancing. I thought of, you know, the idea of proper dancing was ballet, and that kind of wasn't what I wanted to do. Or ballroom dancing, I definitely wasn't going to do that. I really loved country dancing. We used to do a lot of country dancing and barn dancing at school, and I love a Kaylee. Oh my gosh, me too. Me too. Please, can we go um, to a Kaylee when we're allowed to actually physically touch someone? That would be so, so much fun. So I suppose I always liked that kind of dancing that was kind of full of life and joy. And I'd never, and I didn't realise that you could do, you know, if I was young now, I'd have probably done street dancing or something like that, you know. But in, you know, 1842, it wasn't an option. <laughs> <laughs> You're just doing the court so, dances and the baroque. Yeah, exactly. Um, did you, okay, so you won this competition, but you did not continue into a disco dancing career as we know that you're a lighting designer. So what happened to no. that sort of passion? I, I, I think cause I still saw it as something that you just did. So I loved clubbing and I loved dancing and I would dance and dance and dance. We used to go clubbing a lot in Nottingham, um, and in Manchester and, I wouldn't dance with anybody. I'd just dance on my own. I just loved it. Oh, that is the best, the best image ever. Do you still do that? Please tell me you still do that. Uh, I, I feel a bit self-conscious now, but I, in, in the kitchen on my own, I really love to get down. And actually, it was <laughs> really funny. My 50th birthday, we spent in Cornwall in this tiny village hall in a, in a village called Senan. And uh, it was in the middle of winter and it, just a bunch of us went down and we made a little kind of evening and we all made curries and brought that. And then a friend of mine just DJed, but she literally just had a ghetto blaster and just played all the songs I love. And I was just, I just danced and danced and danced. And Bram, my youngest, who's 22, he just said to me afterwards, he loves dancing and loves, go, you know, just that kind of gay abandon. Anyway, he's like, I'm really, it's really great having a mum who's just really happy to get down. Was, I don't dance like a mum, though. I'll never dance with a glass of Chardonnay in my hand. You know what I mean? I just, I'm normally stone cold sober and really serious about it and just go for it. I just love that. What What is it about about that feeling that just... You know, what does it give you? It's letting go, isn't it? It's absolutely letting go. And, it, you know, when I worked in rock and roll, I, I'm in a way doing lighting. You could play with an audience doing stuff like that. You could whip up a frenzy with an audience. And I realised that kind of sense of freedom with how the stage looked. You try and get that going for an audience and also I did a lot of club lighting in the acid house days. So that was also quite a big part of dancing and dance culture. Mm. Okay. So, okay. So oh, I've got some, so many great images in my head and it's so interesting just going back to your other comment, how I think a lot of us actually, and this is something I think in our work in the charitable side of our company is trying to sort of democratize there. There is a dichotomy between dance with a capital D and then, dance that we just sort of do um and you articulated that before that you know that kind of separation between between the two the two things but i think it also still affects the way that i see ballet mm. i still think it's kind of um particularly kind of really conventional conventional classical ballet i i go and i just go this just doesn't feel like doing something that feels so full of joy and I, I, I really admire the discipline of it and the training of it. And I've seen some extraordinary and I've, I've done some work with, you know, with some extraordinary ballet dancers. But it's not been the kind of conventional end of sort of a swan lake or something. But I find when I see those kind of classical ballets, I know many people love them, but I just can't see the way in for me. It's like I'm that five year old and my mother 
telling me that I should appreciate this. I want to touch on your uh, your kind of um, work with your with your partner. Uh, so um, and the da- the dance landscape in the eighties that that you that you mentioned before. Um, so working with DBA and the Chomleys and Second Stride. Uh, I mean, what was that like being in in that kind of environment? It must have been so exciting. It's like the heyday of of British dance emerging. It, it, I suppose it was, but of course you didn't know that at the time, did you? So it, they were amazing people, always really seriously good fun. Um, the two shows that Ian did with Deviate were If Only and Strange Fish. Um, and I worked as an electrician on them both. Ian toured them, I helped put them together. And I, I think both of them were extraordinary, extraordinary pieces of work. Escape at Sea, which was the kind of last big second stride show. I just loved that. Um, yeah, I just really, it, it, there was so much work around like that though, wasn't there? There was so much going on. It was such a brilliant sort of period. You're right. I'd never thought about it as being a heyday, but the fact there was such an amazing exchange of ideas. I remember one of the shows that Second Stride did, you know, um, having a blaze in my breath in his breast having opera singers in it having this amazing text having you know the layers and layers that the work kind of kind of included was extraordinary it's sort of multiple dis- multi-discipline you know if there had been video projection they would have used it then the other company I worked with quite a lot was Lumiere and Son you know which we were so sort of forward-looking and using projection and you know multiple kind of different art forms meeting to make this work um and we've really we we don't have that anymore and i think that's a real shame in terms of an exchange of ideas and different kind of forms of theater or performance learning from each other um which was definitely the world i grew up in and that ties into your you know your kind of love of collaboration as well i guess yeah. uh we, we, this leads really beautifully onto um one of our questions we ask our guests which is what's the most impactful piece of dance that you've seen um i know you've you've kind of touched on them already but out of those ones that you mentioned is there one that sort of stands out and could you kind of take us back to to why it sort of impacted you so much i'm i'm trying to think if it was Strange Fish or If Only, it would be one of those two. Um, well, you can have two. We'll let you have two. Okay. I mean, there are so many images from those shows. One started with Wendy Houston on a ladder in the middle of nowhere and sort of struggling, and then she fell and that into the darkness, and that was the opening image, and it was just... Extraordinary. Melanie Pappenheim on the on the cross. The score for that alone makes my I mean, I, I can just remember the I mean, I remember the first time I saw it and I actually couldn't work out what Melanie was up there. It was like, what am I looking at? What what is what is that? What am I hearing? What am I seeing? Um the the there was a, a this sequence towards the end when stones came showering down into this this space all over Wendy. I mean, I do, how she how she survived doing that show, I have no idea. But and she ended up walking on glasses. I mean, it was just and then the floor came up and it was water and it, I mean, just the images that keep coming at me and coming at me. The more I think about it. Um, and also it was lit by this guy called Stevie Whitson, who was my great kind of teacher and mentor at the time, who was a crazy American from New York, who used to do these kind of really, really, I mean, I'd seen him do really kind of colourful, mad, bonkers shows. And suddenly with Lloyd, he took all the colour away and just made this kind of really sort of crafted in darkness, kind of beautiful work like I'd never seen before I mean as you say the collaboration in that was exceptional I really think that was a big moment for me and it sounds like it's it's the thing that really excites you is is that unexpected and you know that kind of um experimental maybe uh and the music as well that you know that the kind Mm. of how that really uh evokes something for you I think that's true, and I also think that I felt 
even though the, the images were kind of abstract or non-specific, they had extraordinary stories. So the whole idea, I mean, Nigel performing in those, you know, your, your heart, the sense of being a young person being rejected, you know, these models of what society wants people to be and then that not being what you are or who you are and that kind of constantly trying to make relationships and them just not working. I thought it was such a beautiful expression of of kind of the human lot, what it is to be human and to worry about how people see and, and to not feel like you fit. Um, so even though it was abstract, it had a really strong sense of what it was doing and, and, and took you on an amazing journey. So that was extraordinary. So I think it was both, it was just beautifully crafted. You just felt safe, uh, self, safe to kind of dive in and be stimulated and own it for yourself and have, you know, those things where you kind of go, it's not literally telling me this, but it's making me feel something that feels so personal and profound. Yeah. Oh, I wish I could have seen it live. You're you're really um yeah, making me jealous. And it's it's also that combination of of challenging as well, something that is that is challenging you in all the senses and in you know in all of those different ways. What what is it that that really inspires you, Paulie, when you know when you're approaching your work? What 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 do you draw your inspiration from? Um I I I draw a lot of my thinking from I really love light. I love looking at light. I love being in light. I I spend all the time I can when I'm not in dark theatres outside. I love running and I love being in the ocean and I love being in the mountains and I love the extremity of natural light. So I think I find that really inspiring. Um, and I'm sort of quite often think I'm trying to kind of capture an element of that and put it on stage. And I I spend a lot of time just looking at light it just really you know it's like I've spent a lifetime looking at it trying to learn from it trying to find the light that tells a certain story it might communicate a certain quality or idea or you know I worked a lot with a director called Katie Mitchell and the early work that we did it was very 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 much about finding the real light in a situation and then the kind of theatre version of that and how little we could do to, to, to cheat, as it were. So really strip something down to its most simple essence. And I think that's been really formative to me. I, I love doing things that are kind of simple and bold and clear. And it's like walking down a street with the kind of sun, at that kind of low, like I cycled to work in Copenhagen this morning. And the street that I cycle down, the sun comes straight down at nine o'clock in the morning. And it's sort of just above, you know, it's sort of at a, about 30 degrees. And you're sort of cycling into this and everybody in front of you is in silhouette. And they're all sort of moving in this kind of amazing way. And it's been quite sunny, thank goodness, because it's been freezing the last couple of days. And cycling down that street, it's almost hypnotic this sense of people passing in silhouette away from you. And it feels so theatrical. And I, you know, I love putting things like that on stage. So, so real things really inspire me. And then I love, I love people who use strong ideas in their work. So I quite often look at films or photographers um, to try and get a sense of something, of period or of, or, or, or the it of it. You know, I love Ridley Scott films because Ridley Scott always uses light very kind of boldly. Um, it, it, it's just places where people you can see are kind of they, they share my sort of fascination with it or they you know Gregory, Gregory Crudson as a photographer uses light very 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 overtly um, all of those things are really exciting and I love trying to kind of capture them and use them myself I love that and it really strikes me as quite a profound parallel between the way that Matthew works actually because he's so you know affected by by film references and and yeah that kind of visual kind of um hunger that he has to bring those things into his work did you find that from when you started working with him Absolutely I think between him and Les they're kind of both so strong and uh, in the kind of visual you know that you'll always get a kind of brilliant catalogue of films to watch books to read 
worlds to dive into. I mean, obviously, Red Shoes was the kind of clearest in a way. But it, but even with that, it wasn't just watch the film. It was just, you know, dive into this world of Powell and Pressburger and the ballet at the time. And it, it, there's, it, they're so rich, those situations. I mean, the, net, the new show, that's a whole new kind of world to dive into. So, yeah, I... I mean, Romeo, in a way, was the one that was slightly different to that, partly because of the kind of bleakness of that landscape. But even then, I found, you know, watching films like La Prophète or something like that, you know, kind of French contemporary cinema of inside prisons, you know, it's got One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm just trying to think about other things that I reference, but all of those kind of films, the landscape that they put those people in feels really brilliant. And that's the sort of thing that I'm trying to bring to the audience. I love that. And I think it really speaks to this idea that um, that art is actually, I hate to use the word plagiarism, but it's, it's, it's borrowing, isn't it? It's, it's often sort of being inspired and being affected by the things that surround you and then finding a way to channel that into, into what, what you do and how you sort of see the world. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think it is plagiarism in a way, because in, in the theatre we're always trying to communicate an idea, aren't we? So it can't always be abstract or from nothing. It's actually because the audience have got cultural reference points. And there's a reason that things that we see and experience in our everyday might make us feel a certain way. Or, you know, that institutions tend to have a certain quality of light. You know, there's a kind of brutality that you're trying to, you're not trying to have a space that's soft and dark and has got secret places. There's nowhere to hide in a white space, for instance. And the quality of light is quite brutal because these young people are being brutalised. So there's a kind of psychology around it as well. Mm. So fascinating. All the, the kind of world building that you do is I, I just am in awe. Uh, I'm aware of time, Paulie, so we're going to move on a little bit um, mm. just to uh, one of your loves, one of my loves, one of Matthew's loves, music. And uh, we ask all of our guests what their favourite piece of music is to dance to. That could be either on stage or in your kitchen, like you mentioned, or on a night out. Um, I really love your choice. We're going to play a snippet of the track that you picked. So this is Talking Heads with This Must Be The Place. that song poorly you're smiling it's so nice i could just see you just it's got this amazing amazing space in it hasn't it? it's got space and landscape it's got that i remember really vividly a day um on woolacoon beach uh in north devon and uh we were down there with some friends and the kids were probably eight and ten or something like that and the youngest, Bram, we just had this beautiful walk. The sun was going down. It was just one of those perfect, perfect moments. And we it's a big, massive beach, and it was really empty. And Bram came up to me and he said, he said, why do I feel so full up? Why do I feel so full? And I said, that's pleasure, that's joy. It's like, you know, when you just have one of those amazing moments where you're just like, you can you feel full of joy and that song this song has that quality for me it's just it's so it takes the top off your head and it fills you full of air and i can't be sad it can make me very homesick it can make me very homesick for the things i love but even in that it's joyful it's just it fills me up yeah i love it I, I totally resonate with that. And I, I wonder whether is that to do with the music, the way that they've structured it or it or is that to do with them with a memory or probably both? I think it's a bit of both. I think, you know, the talking heads are really sort of seminal in my life and I've loved them ever since they've been around. Um, 
I think there's that thing about a naive melody that he's really playing with, which is there's something very simple about the song and it gives you lots of space to sort of have your own, to own it yourself. Um, and then, you know, the the lyrics feel really kind of really sweet, very giving kind of, and it is absolutely celebrating this, a simple, the simple things in life. Um, and I think we don't do that enough and it just reminds you of of that and I think I think it's not necessarily home as in the place I think it's the place where you feel happy I think it's and that for me is landscape and it's got a sense of landscape so it's sort of a joining of my sense of home it just feels like it's the sort of soundtrack to that really Thank you for sharing that. That's really beautiful and a really apt song for the times that we're living in. Just, you know, going back to something that, that feels simple and that sense of belonging. I went to see the new David Byrne show in, on Broadway it was just before lockdown. I was over there and went to see American Utopia. And um, I just I was over in New York for three days and uh, I just walked up to the theatre, bought a ticket. Didn't, you know, no, it was like it's got a ticket seat on my own. Um sat amongst all these people. I love sometimes that being completely anonymous in a room. And um, I found the show absolutely brilliant. But when they played that song, I cried and cried and cried. And at the end of it, I mean, you know, uncontrollable tears of joy. And this Australian woman was sitting next to me at the end. She looked over and said, oh my God, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm just ridiculously happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh amazing oh beautiful beautiful and then there's the narrative of the music and it kind of it like me is telling a literal story and telling an emotional story so I think it's quite useful for me because that's also abstract you know there's no rules as to what kind of music gives what kind of atmosphere and the same rules when I as I was saying about lighting you've got no idea really there's no science as to, oh, this light in this place will create this look and this feeling. So I like the fact that music is sort of working in in a weird, abstract, make of it what you will landscape, but trying to tell a very specific story. So I, I find composers can be really useful to work with in that way. And I remember the first opera I ever did, and I said to the conductor, you know, what's your advice? And he just said, just ignore the music at your peril, you know, so... With the audience, you're kind of you're kind of surfing that music wave with them, and it's a really great one to work with. Um, yeah, mm, gorgeous. And I guess following your detective um, analogy, it's you're kind of finding the clues, aren't you, from from all of the different things that are that are feeding. But music, obviously, is being being one of those. Yeah. Um, really, yeah, kind of giving you some clues that you can work with or against. Paulie, yeah. I'm I'm just aware of time, so we're we're going to we're going to move on to our our final couple of sections of of our conversation. Um, we've been asking um, all of our guests if they could pick any story, film, or book, and turn that into a Matthew Bourne production. What would they pick? I know, I'm putting you on the spot now. Uh, just off, if there's anything off the top of your head that you've been like, oh, that would be really good as a new adventure show. There's some really fantastic, do you know Kustanica, you know, the Slovenian filmmaker, he made it underground and he made Black Cat, White Cat. Black Cat, White Cat would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would just be amazing. Tell us why, why would that work? It's got so many fantastic kind of quirky stories interwoven and everybody, it's it's already quite extreme and quite, it's got great, it's got that thing that Matthew has of it's got kind of pathos and humour. Um, actually, it's quite a good idea. I'm suddenly thinking that's quite a good idea. <laughs> you should take it to him. Well, he might listen to this podcast. I haven't watched it again. I haven't, I haven't watched it for a while, but... Uh, I'm going to put it on my list, definitely. Yeah. Oh, do. It's a joy. It's an absolute joy.
love it. Everyone comes up with something so different, and it's I just yeah, I can't wait for him to for him to hear. And you never know, you never know what might manifest. Uh, Paulie, we end our podcast with a, just a bit of a silly quiz. Uh, it's ten quick fire questions uh, that are all about dance. Please don't feel scared or pressured. I know that that is not something that you have studied. Just say whatever comes into your head. <laughs> we so rubbish at this. Just, just, just be. You can just say something silly if you don't. If you okay. don't know the answer, are you ready? Let's begin the Born to Dance quiz. Question number one. Whilst Matthew Bourne has run a dance company since 1987, the name New Adventures was not the original name. What was it called before? Adventures in Motion Pictures. Correct. Question number two. Grande and Chico are two versions of what type of Spanish activity? Flamenco. Yes. Question number three. The patron saint of dancers and actors is who? Cecilia's patron saint of music. Paul? Uh, no, it should be uh, Paul, but it was St. Vitus. <laughs> no, I mean, no one even came close, Paulie, so your guess was really was really quite informed. Um, question number four. In 1962, Little Eva introduced what new dance? Little Eva, so it must be, oh, something Motown-y, or is it not the twist, or no, no, but in that, more Motown-y, sort of? In that vein, definitely. Yeah. The locomotion. No. Yes, yes. Say the locomotion. The locomotion. Yes, Polly, come on. She's on a roll, people. <laughs> Mo <laughs> Moving on. Question number five. Matthew Bourne has created productions to the ballet scores of great Russian composers Tchaikovsky and Prokofiev, but which of the two composed more ballets in their lifetime? Oh, this is a complete guess because I have no idea, so I'm going to say Prokofiev. Correct. Yeah! Correct. Prokofiev, Prokofiev composed eight, while Tchaikovsky only composed three. Oh. Staying with the Russian theme for question number six. The Bolshoi Ballet at the Bolshoi Theatre is one of the best known ballet companies in the world. But what does the word Bolshoi mean? Oh, Moscow, Bolshoi. Oh, I don't know. Bolshoi, because it's... It's the opera as well, so... Yeah, it's the building and the company. Sorry? The building and the company. Mm. Yeah. It's not royal, so... Uh, the people... No, it's not people. Bolshoi and Bolshevik. Take a guess. The peoples. Peoples. The peoples. Uh, what does it mean? Incorrect. It means big, large, grand, yeah. great, big. Oh. Bolshoi. Question number seven. What are Hamilton House and Petronella? Hamilton House. I have no idea. Uh, they are Scottish country dancers. Oh. Yeah. Hamilton mm. House. I guess Hamilton's a part, uh, an area in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, question number eight. What was the name of the beguiling gypsy dancer in The Hunchback of Notre Dame? Esmeralda. Correct. Question number nine. Which 20th century ballerina was later edible? Uh, uh, 20th century. Fonte Margot Fontaine? No. Um... <laughs> <laughs> the answer, by the way, was Pavlova or Pavlova. Oh, and a Pavlo of it was. Yeah, I know. I know. I was going to say Tutu, but that would have been too much of a clue. OK, here we go. Question number 10. According to folklore, which hypnotic dance can cure a spider's the Tarantella. Come on, Paulie Constable. <laughs> yes, look at you go. Uh, so you are on six out of ten, <laughs> which puts you into the tied winning spot with Sir Matthew Bourne himself. <laughs> that is hilarious. Absolutely amazing, Paulie. Mind you, you've probably only done me and Matt so far, so. No, <laughs> we, we have done six six podcasts so far so that is a really valiant effort not too shabby at all congratulations paulie it's been such a pleasure talking to you i could talk to you all day about what you do i still have lots of 
things that I'm curious about, but it's been really enlightening and so lovely. Thank you for sharing your 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 beautiful um, practice with us and also your kind of personal moments. Um, it's been really lovely having this chat with you. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. That was really lovely. Thank Thanks. you. Take care. Mm-hmm.